We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. The word freedom itself became associated with these negative ideas, which is a very strange moment in our constitutional societal history that the word freedom itself, which is inherent to our Bill of Rights, Canadian Bill of Rights, to the American Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that liberty was really compromised over the last three years. And you'd have to say that happiness was also compromised because people who are not free tend to be less happy, I would say, and more anxious and all that stuff. And so both of those things were diminished in a big way in the last few years, for sure. The question I would ask also is when we talk about freedom, I think the discussion should also include responsibility. And so I think the naysayers, let's say, you mentioned the freedom convoy. So those against it would probably push the freedom issue aside simply because they felt threatened by it. So they really lost the definition of the word freedom in the sense that it was being, in their opinion, compromised. You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 198, PH Factor, The World As It Could Be, Our Vital Choices. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Morning, Peter. How are you? Pretty good, Harry. Thanks, you? Pretty good, thanks. How's Ontario treating you? Are we going to talk about the weather? (laughs) (laughs) Are you happy with the weather? (laughs) I'm not happy with the weather. There's a warning out here in Ontario. We're expecting a major dump tomorrow, late afternoon, evening. It's supposed to be the biggest snowfall of this winter, so it'll be curious mm. to see how it pans out. But other than that, pretty good, Harry. No complaints. How about you? We get everything you get, so we'll be seeing that dump probably a day or two later here, as it turns out. So mm-hmm. we share in the weather. Otherwise, all is good here. Are you happy today? Uh, reasonably. I'm never fully happy, to be honest with you. Because happiness, well, happiness and freedom, it's what we're talking about today on the podcast. Mm -hmm. How do you know you're happy? Is happiness something that you would choose over freedom if you could have it or vice versa? But one of the things about happiness I find interesting is that it seems to be easier to talk about than, say, freedom, which is the other topic of our chat today. I asked uh, some folks last night at dinner time, when they're happy, how do they know they're happy? And they thought for a moment, and one person said, well, I can feel my heart growing bigger or warmer. Someone else said, well, it's when I don't have my normal anxiety, when my pain is dissipated, I feel happy, that sort of thing. Oh, and someone else said, oh, when I wake up in the morning and I feel like I want to leap into the day, I'm really happy that the new day has come. That's a sign that I'm happy. So people seem to be able to express that because it's a feeling. I asked somebody, how do you know that you're free or are you free? And they said, it's very hard to know because I may feel free in one moment, but then I realize I'm trapped in the next moment. And it's because freedom is more like a state of being and happiness is more of a feeling that it's a different way of talking about it. It's harder to talk about freedom, but we're going to talk about both today. How about you? What do you say When I ask you the question, when you're happy, how do you know it? Well, first of all, I tend not to use the word happy 
I'm more of a content kind of person than I am a happy person. I seek contentment more than I do happiness, only because I think happiness is, as you mentioned, kind of a broad term with a lot of definitions, open to interpretation and so on. And I don't know I could define it in any particular way, although some of those things you expressed I would definitely experience. Contentment to me means sort of an equilibrium where you understand the difference between or you appreciate reality and also your responsibility in a particular situation to make yourself happy, if I can use that term. It's about you finding your own kind of center, not relative to just everything that's around you. You talked about happiness and freedom. I think sometimes those two words are sort of inextricably linked, even though they may not be used in the same sentence. I think we associate happiness with freedom. I think we also have illusions about freedom, what we think is freedom and what actually is freedom. And I'm sure we'll discuss that throughout this podcast might be two very different things. Mm -hmm. So if you're asking me the basic question of how do I define happiness, I would say where I'm feeling even keeled and looking forward to my day, which I generally do, and where I am responsive to the things around me and where I don't feel a need to criticize others or to find fault in things around me, where I'm more open to being, for lack of a better term, reasonable with whatever I'm facing. Hmm. Reasonable. That's a very interesting word to use in the context of happiness, contentment, reasonable. But anyway, that's your way of connecting to it. For me, I'm the happiest when I'm the most creative, I guess, is my answer to that. When I'm in the midst of creating something and letting the intuition flow and letting the words flow, that's where I really feel connected to life and to my life and to my, whatever the word destiny means, to my destiny, which is to create and to write and so that's when I feel the most happy. But it's not something that's constant, I guess. It's, it's something that comes and goes like feelings do. Well, now that you mentioned it, I agree with that. And I would add that to what I said. Definitely the creative process is certainly a source of joy. Mm -hmm. I use the word joy instead of happiness, but they're synonymous. I think it's also because for me, the creative process also gives me a sense of purpose. And a sense of purpose to me is my identity, if you will. And the happiness question you asked also comes from a sense of well-being because we take a lot of things for granted. Well, you and I, for example, we're kind of privileged in the sense that we don't have to worry too much about day-to-day -day survival. And so we have a fairly secure environment in which to do things, even this podcast, for example. And I think those three things, a sense of security, identity, and purpose, excluding the security portion, the creative process certainly gives you purpose and identity. Right. And what you sort of quoted there about security, identity, and purpose as being part of what happiness is, this is something that a Bhutanese speaker by the name of Sharing Tobge shared in a very interesting YouTube ah. video talking about Bhutan, his home, and the fact that they, back in July of 2008, instituted something called the GNH or the Gross National Happiness Indicator. We have Gross National Product Indicators, so economically based, but this is not economically based, called Gross National Happiness, or sometimes called Gross Domestic Happiness. And it's a philosophy that guides the government of Bhutan. I'm familiar with it. Yeah, and apparently there are four pillars to this indicator, if you like. 
including environmental conservation, cultural promotion, sustainable and equitable development, and good governance. And those four pillars are then broken into nine domains or areas, and they have 72 measurable indicators to discover what this gross national happiness measurement is, including the percentage of forest cover on the land, education, and that sort of thing. So really interesting that this country has kind of put psychological and spiritual, if you like, well-being above economic well-being as the most important indicator of well-being and happiness of the nation. Well, what you're really talking about is the things that that particular nation is choosing to value. So even when you're comparing it to the general economy or the North American or European concept of GDP, you're giving value to those things, but you're not equating dollars to them, whereas the GDP is strictly a numerical and dollar-based system. So we're looking at two things which seem to be very different in terms of how we measure them, but they're both value-driven. Sure, but one is driven by the acquisition of wealth, and the other is driven by how one lives one's life and how one relates to one's family and culture and the happiness that one gives and gets from interacting in that way. It's a very different approach. And as we know, Bhutan is primarily Buddhist, so there's a very strong Buddhist influence there. And so even in early education, children are taught how to meditate, how to calm themselves and find a kind of inner peace to take with them through their day and into their lives. Healthcare, education are free in Bhutan mm -hmm. as well. So there's a lot of ways in which government tries to alleviate the stresses and strains that we often feel here in the West in terms of our health care, our educational costs, and all that stuff that really build our anxieties and reduce our levels of happiness. Which addresses that third portion of the happiness definition, which is security. Only you're talking about it on a national level. And the reason why I brought that whole thing up, even though they're different approaches, it is giving value to the things that we normally don't apply dollars to. A country like Bhutan recognizes that value, which may not translate into dollars, but that also translates into dollars in some ways, because if you look at the things that they're taking care of, that they're prioritizing, those are also the things that will ultimately lead to a more balanced economy as well. Because when you have educated, well-cared-for citizens, everything runs smoother. So you may still get those gains that you're seeking in a strictly GDP-type environment, but you're getting them in a more wholesome way over a longer period of time and more sustainable, in my opinion. Right. And here, governments in the West, what they kind of replace with happiness in terms of their rhetoric is public safety and security. We're going to make laws and put in restrictions in order to make sure that everybody is safe and sound and secure. But the cost of that tends to be a reduction of freedom for the individual. In other words, to create more security, they might beef up the police forces or cameras everywhere. So now you start feeling like you're not free to move around as an individual without being watched constantly. I'd like to take this conversation to a more day-to-day, -to, -day, to what we teach our children. Yeah. We talk a lot about, in our society anyway, safety and security. Also, the big part of that is financial security. We are 
really focused on that a lot. Sometimes I think the financial security is overemphasized, but I understand why, because that's the world we live in and we run by it. Not saying that it's not important, but sometimes I think we forego other things that are equally important and probably more important in terms of our mental and emotional well-being. And we tend to focus primarily on the dollar and cents side of the equation. Right. And what parents tend to want for their kids is for them to be happy, to be safe and secure financially. That's pretty basic is what parents tend to express when you ask them that question. But my question is, when do they inculcate the idea of freedom in their kids and what that means? I would say very few do overall, which is why most children, when they become adolescents and teenagers, they begin to rebel against their parents because the whole push to make them happy, safe, and secure feels a bit like a straitjacket to kids as they grow up. And they want to break out of that and build their own life. And that means being free to make mistakes, to go out into the world and live your life as you do, and to learn and grow in your own way, and to not be your parents, basically. (laughs) Exactly. And what I'm saying is not to diminish the importance, because as I said, we live in a world where financial security and so on is relevant and important, but there are other things that I think go by the wayside. And when you talk about freedom, if you talk to different people and you ask them what freedom means to them, you're going to get very different answers. That reminds me of a video, Pettit, I think you mentioned it to me the other day. Yes. And he talks about Ibsen's The Dollhouse, in which Nora, the wife, is told, you know, by her well-to-do husband, you're free to do anything you want. Go ahead, do whatever you want. But it's not really freedom, he explains, because she's being given that. So it seems to me that freedom needs to be something that is taken and claimed by the individual. It's not something that can be given. It's not really freedom then if it's given. Mm-hmm. But again, it's a question of definition and whether or not that definition applies either individually or nationally or internationally is another issue. Because when you're creating or developing laws that focus on the freedom theme, those are considerations I think you'd have to make. What exactly does it mean? What is required in order to really have autonomy? Mm-hmm. Is autonomy a requirement of freedom? Yeah, I would think so. You could look at it this way too, Peter. You could say freedom from what or freedom to what. I can be free from harassment, free from persecution, but I also have to be free to speak my mind, free to to travel. So there's the sort of two directions. I need to be free protected in a way. So that's what's the security part. So when the government says, we're going to help you be secure, they mean we're going to give you freedom from persecution and freedom to worship in my own way. So there's both sides of freedom that have to be addressed when you're talking about it. It's a complicated issue. It's a complex idea, much more complex than happiness, I think, in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think of those two things together? Let's talk about, as we usually do recently, the last two or three years. Yeah. Which of those two things do you think have been compromised the most? Or do you think they're really something that you can't separate? Oh, I think the word freedom and the idea of freedom has been hugely compromised over the last few years. 
through COVID, the restrictions, people speaking out and speaking up and protesting and saying, we would like our freedom back because these measures were experienced as a deep attack on individual freedoms, which they were. The fact that thousands of trucks, thousands of people who supported those trucks descended on Ottawa, Canada, a year and a bit ago, the Freedom Convoy, as it was called, showed just how important individual freedom is to people. But the people who attacked the Freedom Convoy basically attacked the word freedom. They said these people who espouse freedom are misogynist, sexist, racist, whatever, Nazis, they call them. And so the word freedom itself became associated with these negative ideas, which is a very strange moment in our constitutional societal history that the word freedom itself, which is inherent to our Bill of Rights, Canadian Bill of Rights, to the American Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, that liberty was really compromised over the last three years. And you'd have to say that happiness was also compromised because people who are not free tend to be less happy, I would say, and more anxious and all that stuff. And so both of those things were diminished in a big way in the last few years, for sure. The question I would ask also is, when we talk about freedom, I think the discussion should also include responsibility. And so I think the naysayers, let's say, you mentioned the freedom convoy. So those against it would probably push the freedom issue aside simply because they felt threatened by it. It was being, in their opinion, compromised. Yeah. But from my point of view, those people were conned by governments and convinced by governments that the responsibility lay on the citizens of the country to comply and follow all the rules like robots and not ask any questions and not speak out for fear of censorship, take the jab for fear of losing their job. And this is all part of the responsibility side of freedom and responsibility. Yes, you have freedom, but you have responsibility to your fellow human beings. Even if that didn't really pan out scientifically, they push that on people. And those people were the ones who attacked the freedom convoy in that way. So it's all in what people were led to believe. And that played into the way they approached the protests in Ottawa. So what you're talking about really is a sort of a failed leadership. Yeah, a leadership that really twisted people's way of understanding the world, of understanding science, and turned people away from common sense, weirdly enough. And people, unfortunately, went with it, trusted like children. And where are we now? Well, we're still in a pandemic, aren't we? According to the WHO, we have outbreaks still everywhere of COVID. People are wearing masks, even though they don't really do anything. And people are caught up in it because our governments propagandized us to a huge degree. And there's no liberty there to think freely or clearly when your mind is occupied with propaganda. Mm -hmm. That's my view. One extreme invites another extreme. So if you have people who have these very extreme ideas and thoughts and seek to control or seek to censor, there's a reaction that comes with that, which is clearly seen not just on a national level, but as we talked about in families. 
where there's a restrictive kind of thinking or a censorship type of approach that only invites not only rebellion, but there's a curiosity, I believe, that's driven in people when they're denied their own ability to examine, to explore, to find things out for themselves. So I think part of the issue overall is education and openness. So for example, I don't tell my child this because I'm protecting them from when oftentimes we are simply closing them out of something that's inevitably going to resurface, telling your children what the real situation is. Of course, you have to consider being age appropriate rather than denying them the knowledge or thinking that you can control what they can and cannot know when eventually they're going to determine that for themselves anyway. And you're not allowing the discussion to take place. Education is still, I believe, the best way for us to sort of even out the playing field and not have these extreme behaviors on either side. Sure. I mean, if you can teach children how to think rather than how to become dutiful consumers, then they'll be less inclined to be duped by propaganda, to be duped by poor thinking, and will be their own person. They'll stand up and say, no, 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 no. The truth I understand is this truth, and I'm going with that. And so I'm not going to let you take my liberties away for some false idea of what public safety is or should be. Give me liberty or give me death, was Patrick Henry's cry, (laughs) one of the founding fathers of the United States. Mm -hmm. He said that in 1775, and people feel so strongly about that, that they would give up their lives for their liberty. And we fought world wars over the idea of liberty, not over the idea of happiness, over the idea of liberty, and civil wars over the idea of liberty, and people who are oppressed rising up over the idea of liberty. So liberty, to me, stands out as being more important, anyways, than happiness. Because if I'm free, I'm free to experience everything from the deepest sadness and suffering to the greatest joy and happiness. And to me, that also perpetuates critical thinking. And critical thinking is taking responsibility and reflecting on one's own situation and one's own contribution to a situation and our personal responsibility in any situation. Look, governments do not want us to be critical thinkers. Governments do not want us to be really free in the way we live our lives because the fear the governments have is that chaos will ensue if people were actually free. So there's a certain inherent bias against the freedom of the individual in government, it seems to me, anyways. Well, I go back to the usual discussions that we have on this topic. It's a systemic problem Governments are compromised because we've adopted a way of living, for example, that corporations and individuals of very high wealth have tremendous influence on governments now. And so governments are also sort of handcuffed in some ways because they are responding to these institutions or these individuals of very high wealth that are an imposition on the system. Yeah. So... The only way you're going to change that is for us collectively begin to respond to a situation, not react. And we respond by beginning to change our own thinking and our own behavior. How do you know the difference between react and respond? Well, I can only speak for myself in terms of how I feel, even emotionally. When I'm responding to something, 
I'm remaining relatively calm. I'm looking at something. I'm open to dialogue. I'm open to hearing a different opinion from my own. I'm open to being asked questions and asking questions. Reaction is more of a visceral, emotional response that doesn't have a lot of thought to it. It's more angry-based. It's more frustration-based. Okay. So that's what it is for me. I can tell just by the way I'm feeling whether I'm responding or reacting to something. Mm-hmm. I guess, you know, the same must apply then to happiness because there's a choice there to be made. Or is there a choice? Can you choose to be happy? No, I think you can. And again, this is why I use the word contentment versus happy, because I think you can also put too much pressure on yourself to achieve something that may be an illusion to begin with. You're trying to achieve something that is perhaps beyond your grasp. It's like taking small bites versus ingesting everything at once. If you aim for contentment, meaning on balance, I have a lot more positive things going than negative things going meaning I can cope better and then I can deal. And then that also enables me to respond more, react less. Mm. I don't have an answer for the world. I have an answer for myself. I have an answer. Mm. We should all learn to speak Finnish. (laughs) Because apparently, according to the World Happiness Report, (laughs) as of March 2022, Finland was ranked the happiest country in the world five times in a row. Yeah, so let's very briefly talk about that as we close this podcast. So if you look at that measuring stick for that, in other words, how do they arrive at these definitions of the happiest country and so on? How is that put together? If you look at the very basic things, education, security, a people generally in tune with their government, the elderly being looked after, children being looked after, those are very basic things which can tell you a lot. They may not give you every piece of information that you need, but essentially the societies that tend to do well in the so-called happiness quotient are the ones that look after, again, the same three things that we talked about where we defined happiness. Mm -hmm. Identity, purpose, and security. You're creating a society that enables their citizens to achieve those three things. Not 100%, not all the time, but essentially those three things are covered for the society. So you take the individual requirements and then you just stretch it out to the entire society. And that's why I believe that Finland is the country that comes to mind, but most of the Scandinavian countries and other countries that typically show up in the top 10, those are the three things that are essentially covered. Not perfectly. Yeah. Because there is no perfect country. Mm. That's the other thing, too. I think we have to let go of that perfection and look at the overall picture. If you have people whose health is being looked after, they don't live in daily fear, they have a sense of self, they have a sense of wanting to contribute not only to their own lives, but to the lives of those next to them and to their communities. That's a healthier, more balanced approach to living. That's a wonderful way of finishing this podcast, Peter. I wish you all the happiness in the world, as they say. And let us know what you'd like us to talk about in our 200th podcast, which is coming soon, isn't it, Peter? The next one or the one after? Well, this one is 198. The next one is 199, which is technically our 200th podcast because we have uh, TSP000, which was not a podcast, but we created that episode. All right. So on that note, Harry, ciao. Ciao, Peter. 
The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.